Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what's taking place, what's happening, rather, in Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr's office. Well, we know he's been busy lately, from challenging Biden administration vaccine mandates to combating human trafficking in the state. He'll join us to talk about all of that and his other top priorities for the year ahead. Plus, a recap of what state lawmakers debated this week with our WABE politics team, reporters Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass. They'll join us. It's always a fun time with those guys. The Super Bowl is this weekend, and there's so much more happening from racial equity in the NFL to the halftime show, which is what I'm looking forward to. Sports marketing and business veteran Marcel English drops by for a look at the league and so much more. All that's ahead, but first this. It's one step closer to a vote. That is for the city of East Cobb. The state Senate voted 31 to 18 Thursday in favor of holding a referendum on whether to form the city of East Cobb. A similar measure cleared the state house last month. Now, supporters say the move will bring government closer to the people. Those on the other side have questioned the need for the city and raised concerns about its cost. Cobb County is facing the prospect the prospect of losing at least three other areas that also may get legislative approval this year to vote on cityhood. Speaking of Cobb County, the school district seems to be looking for an alternative to its current accrediting agency. WAB education reporter Martha Dalton has those details. Right now, Cobb schools are accredited by an agency called Cognia. It conducted a special review of the district in August after complaints from the community and some board members. Afterward, Cognia outlined steps Cobb needs to take to keep its accreditation. They include adhering to the district's own policies and code of ethics and having clear procedures for handling money. At a board meeting Thursday, parents like Shannon Dyson accused the district of skirting the review. We have learned that the board and superintendent are intentionally ignoring Cognia and have instead decided to pursue replacing Cognia with another accreditation agency, the Georgia Accrediting Commission. The Georgia Accrediting Commission says it has visited Cobb High Schools and will vote on accreditation status in April. A spokesperson for Cobb Schools wouldn't confirm the visits, except to say staff are constantly evaluating all issues affecting students, including accreditation. Martha Dalton, WABE News. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is defending Georgia's participation in a program that allows states to share data from various voter rolls. This comes after Louisiana suspended its use of the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC, following false claims of election conspiracy from far-right media organizations. Raffensperger says the ERIC database gives his office a way to find out when a Georgia voter registers to vote in another state, and vice versa. We get better death records. We can really keep our voter rolls updated. If you don't have that, you're going to have dirty list. And it's doing an excellent job. We have better voter roll and better list maintenance because of it. And finally, sadly, we know the Atlanta Falcons won't be playing in the Sunday Super Bowl, but Georgia will be well represented in the matchup between the Rams and the Bengals. Ten players, one head coach, and two assistant coaches will all hail from Georgia high schools. Each of the players in the first from their high school to reach the Super Bowl. Now, Rams head coach Sean McVay, a former Marist school quarterback, could be the first Georgia native head coach to win a Super Bowl. Former Georgia players have also have participated in every Super Bowl since 1968. Now, we'll have more on this weekend's big game and the state of the NFL later this hour. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is calling for the state's attorney general office and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to work together to tackle crime. 
You may know that Kemp's 2023 budget proposal includes support of expanding the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit and allocating $1.6 million for the Office of Attorney General to establish a new gang prosecution unit. In addition, if passed, House Bill 1134 will provide the Office of the Attorney General with concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute criminal gang activity across Georgia. Well, joining me now to talk about all this and his top priorities and outlook for 2022, as well as wearing his Georgia Bulldog baseball cap, is Attorney General Chris Carr. Welcome back to the program. It's been some time. Hello, Rose. It has been. And, and there's been a lot of exciting activity with our sports team since you and I last talked. The Braves won the series and the Dogs won the national championship. I guess Those you, are good things. I guess you were the jinx, huh? Coming on the show, they go on the show, they don't win. <laughs> That's exactly. That's why I got to give the uh, Governor's Cup when Georgia beat Georgia Tech, and then we went on to lose to Alabama in the SEC championship. So, so uh, some friends of mine were very quick to remind me that we were on an zero and one streak since that happened. So Absolutely. No. Well, listen, before we get into all our conversation about your priorities and everything else, I think I've asked you this before because I think sometimes folks don't quite understand. The role of the attorney general. Some say, well, he's the, the state's top attorney or that just does whatever the governor wants. Uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception about your job? Well, I think it, what it is, is that we're the uh, lawyers for the executive branch of state government. So any of the agencies, the boards, the, the authorities that comprise state government, we're the lawyers for, and that includes the governor's office, but Department of Education, the Medical Board, the Nursing Board, Department of Natural Resources, any of those, we're the lawyers for. We work closely with the judicial branch, so when judges get sued in their official capacity, mm -hmm. by courtesy, we'll also represent them. We work closely with the legislature on issues like human trafficking, elder abuse, gang activity, you name it. Uh, and also, we work closely with cities and counties. And even though we're not their lawyers, anyone who's a resident of a city or county in Georgia is also my constituent. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have a, a, an incentive to get it right. And you also, you all can give legal opinion, advice to the state, to the governor, if you all think perhaps that one viewpoint or is it worth, you know, like, for example, suing the Biden administration? You do that. You 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 take that responsibility and you have maybe in your opinion been in, in opposition of governor Kemp or have you had that happen? What, what we do is you're right. We can give official opinions. We can give legal advice, we, which we do all the time. And what's interesting too, Rose is on any given day, we've got about 150 lawyers in house and 150 uh, professionals, which are auditors or investigators, mm -hmm. but we also hire two to 300 private practitioners where we have a geographic or subject matter need, oftentimes DOT, mm -hmm. child support, defects. And I say child support because that's actually the only client that we have that's not a government agency. Uh, it is the custodial parent and the child. So there are times we'll get asked legal questions all across the spectrum. That's our job. So, But it's unique because I am elected mm -hmm. and I'm constitutionally separate from the governor or Secretary of Agri or, uh, Department of Agriculture, whoever it may be. So I always say our job is to uphold the Constitution of the United States, Constitution and laws of the state of Georgia, and represent the interests of the people of our state because I am responsible to them. But you can understand some folks because you run on with a, a partisan lean. So you understand sure. that folks say, well, OK, well, he's still going to be probably more in favor of if it's a Republican governor, which we, which we have now, you'll be in favor of that. Is that a, is that a fair Unfair criticism? I'm I'm a Republican, and I certainly am proud to be a Republican. But what my job is, Rose, is to uphold the laws of the state of Georgia. Whatever's duly passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, even if I might have done it differently, we defend it. And then we go to court, and we, you know, it, it's up to a judge to determine that. Uh, there's policy questions. There's legal questions. Our job is to act as the lawyer for the state of Georgia. But yeah, I'm a Republican. I'm a proud Republican. And I work very well with the governor and others. Do you think it was necessary to file four separate lawsuits in response to the vaccine mandates imposed by the Biden administration? That's a lot. I do. I absolutely do. And here's why, Rose. These lawsuits were not about whether or not the mandate, whether or not vaccines made sense. I think they do. I encourage people to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I'm vaccinated myself, my family, my daughter. We're all vaccinated, but this is about a legal question. 
And the question was, can the president of the United States, this president or anyone, do what he did to mandate the vaccine as it related to companies over 100, healthcare workers, federal contractors, and child, and, and child care centers? Because if he can do it this way, then any president can go around the Congress, go around the Constitution, and use his pen to do things that, again, that we think where does it end if they can do this? So again, the courts agreed with well, us. Well, every president tries to do that. <laughs> no, that's, that's not Some presidents have tried to go around. I mean, our former president tried to, uh, in a lot of different instances, tried to go around or through the Constitution with some of the immigration executive orders. Anytime that a president does that, you can see, look, let's go back to partisan politics. There are Republican AGs that have sued Democratic administrations. Mm-hmm. There's Democratic AGs that have sued Republican administrations. I spent time in Washington as chief staff to Senator Isis. Mm-hmm. My observation is this, Rose, where Congress doesn't do its job, where it is gridlocked, nature abhors a vacuum. Mm-hmm. The political environment abhors a vacuum. So if Congress isn't going to push back on the presidency, because if Congress doesn't do it, then the federal executive is likely to do it, Republican or D- Democrat. Who's going to push back? It's likely the states because we have a federal system. AGs are in the best position to represent their states, but so are governors. And it's, it's happened in both parties. And that that's fair. Now, let me ask you this, because I do want to get on to some of your top priorities. But, you know, sure. as it relates to the 2020 presidential election and we are still folks like me, folks like you. This is still in the headlines about whether or not. The Georgia presidential election, the results were stolen from then President Donald Trump. Still having to defend that within your own Republican Party. What have you said to folks about that? And and did you get any pressure? We know that Brian Kemp did, but I don't know if folks understand. Did you get any pressure to help overturn the results for Donald in, in Donald went, Trump's favor? We went to court sixteen times mm-hmm. between November the third and January the 5th, defending the laws of our state, and we prevailed 16 times. Was that my, was was it my preferred political outcome that two Republican senators lost and a Republican president lost? No, that wasn't my preferred political outcome. My job as the attorney general was based on fact and law to uphold the laws of the state. Did you get any pressure from anybody, Attorney General Carr? There, there, there's always political pressure from folks that are, if you're Republican or you're Democrat, are you asking, did somebody ask me to do something that would have violated the law? Absolutely not. And I wouldn't have done it. And I proved it mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have done it. I went to court. It was Trump judges. It was Obama judges. It was federal judges. It was state court judges. The fact remains, there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud such that it would have overturned the 2020 election. That's what we proved in court. But Rose, I want to make a good point here. Make your point. I've taken an anti-misinformation position, whether it's from the right or the left. Stacey Abrams said she lost the governor's race because of voter suppression. There's absolutely, there was nobody that voted in 28, that was prohibited from voting in 2018 that was a registered and eligible voter in this state. I'll give you two examples, though. Two but Stacey points. Abrams did not ask anybody to do anything that was illegal. There's a big difference. And you know that. Stacey Abrams got more votes than any candidate for governor in Georgia history, except for one guy named Brian Kemp. She refused to concede the election. But she did not she ask anybody to do anything illegal. That's the difference here, A.G. Carr. Come on, you, you and I, we've talked for a long time now. Let's be fair about this. I can be mad Stacey. about something, but if if I ask you to do something that is illegal and an outright lie, that's problematic. Nope, nobody asked me to, but Rose. They may not have asked you to. They, Hillary you look, Clinton. Hold if, on. But you, no, no, no. If Trump asked Brian Kemp to do something that he knows is wrong, he's asking the state. And you represent. And now you've just said, hey, Rose, we came out. We said, look, there was nothing wrong. But the difference is, and be fair about this, please. Stacey Abrams never asked anybody to do anything illegal to change the votes in her favor. True? 
Stacey Abrams said that people prohibited folks from voting. That's not true. She filed a lawsuit, 20 claims in federal court rose, 20, and a federal judge has dismissed 18 of them. But let's go back. Let's talk about history. Sure. Hillary Clinton said she lost the election because of the Russians. We well, know that's not true. <laughs> Attorney General Cole, <laughs> no, 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 look, Stacey said she lost because of voter suppression. And then, the, that wasn't okay. You Republicans up- said that they lost Georgia because of voter fraud. We know there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud such that it would have overturned the election. So what's happened is over the last three cycles, but what did happen mm-hmm. is both parties have complained about elections, strong mm-hmm. lines, local boards not doing their job. So we passed SB 202. Oh, here you go. Strength and security, improved access and transparency in elections. Both parties complained about it. Both parties said that said that the, the job wasn't getting done. True. So you know, the legislature passed that bill. And you and I both know that depending on whom you ask, for some groups it is suppressive, and for others, it's fantastic. Now I don't There's want absolutely. That's, that, that's not a fair uh, uh, characterization. Yes, it is. And you we just know had an election, that. You and nobody's complained no. about any suppression. What do you mean it's nobody's complained no about? Come on, G. Come on, you mean nobody's complained about suppression? Come on, folks have. We just had an election, Rose, in, in the city of Atlanta. Who said that there was suppression going on based on not, SB two hundred two? Not the, the local municipal. A. G. Carr, let's one. let's talk. Let's let's be fair. Let's 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 come on, stop. You no, not come on. I agree. Let's stop. Let's, let's let, stop let, mischaracterizing. No, what's no, going on. no. Because Rose, this is the city of Atlanta is different than when you talk about a state statewide elections. You know that. You know what? I tell you what. Because no, 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 no. Well, there were municipal elections all across the state of Georgia based on SB two hundred two. But it's unfair to Rose. I'm anti misinformation. Are That's you? The but I'm but you just said. But, but what you did. But death. what you said was. You compared Stacey Abrams and Donald Trump and their, if you want to call them, their concerns, allegations. The point I asked you was, was there not a difference between did Stacey Abrams ask someone to do something that was illegal in order to get the votes in her favor? The answer is no. That's the difference. You say it's not. Stacey Abrams said it was voter suppression. Donald Trump and others said it was voter did fraud. Did she make a call Both to the? Were did she make a call to Secretary of State and say, "All I need is eleven thousand votes"? No, come on, be fair. I, our listeners deserve that. You know I'm feisty, but I'm fair. <laughs> well, usually <laughs> today you're having a bad day, oh, though. Rose. No, you're I'm not. A very bad no, day. I'm, I'm having a great day. You know what? Because I woke up. Listen, I want to move on to the proposed yes, gang prosecution unit because sure. we know. And I just had Vic Reynolds on this week. I also spoke to Speaker David Rostin. Everybody agrees that crime is bad. We know that. This gang prosecution unit, and it's been around now, we know that in, in Director Reynolds' office, are you making inroads in terms of prosecution? And are you, do, are you satisfied then with what you all are going to be able to do to get more convictions? Well, first of all, Vic has done an unbelievable job and having been a police officer, a DA, and now a GBI director, he's, he's done a phenomenal job. The resources that the legislature and the governor have put forth into investigating gang crimes, we need to have the, the prosecution unit. But to answer the question, Rose, I'll say it this way. Look at what we've done on human trafficking. Mm-hmm. What we said was a lot, a, a lot of what happens in the human trafficking front is online. It goes through multiple jurisdictions it makes sense for the state to have concurrent jurisdiction, which means DAs have jurisdiction and that at, we would have an additional jurisdiction to be able to prosecute as well. It doesn't take anything away. Sure. It's an add to. We have seen uh, just let me just give you the statistics from 2021 alone. 25 cases initiated, nine individuals arrested, 51 defendants investigated and prosecuted and 107 victims rescued and assisted. Mm -hmm. Point being, when you are working across multiple jurisdictions, it makes sense for the state to have a role. We're saying the same thing, though, with gangs. We know that over 50 percent of all violent crime is gang affiliated. We know gangs. It's about one violent crime, but two about making money. Mm -hmm. It's all about selling guns, drugs, human beings, you name it, cyber crime. So if you're going to have gangs operating over multiple jurisdictions, it's the same model we've got for human trafficking. 
add to, be a force multiplier, mm-hmm. work with federal, state, and local law enforcement. We also know there's gangs in our correction system. Sure. And if you, oftentimes you'll get contraband cell phones, scams we've talked about, elder abuse, scams are operating from inside the corrections. And we've got great partners that are working on it, but this would give us a chance to prosecute those cases where DAs don't have uh, the resources to do it in some of the smaller jurisdictions. So it's basically laying the same model on top of the other. Director Reynolds talked about the fact that he does have a backlog of criminal cases, but mostly as it relates to with the labs and forensic evidence and things of that nature. Is there anything that your office can do to, in, in helping with that situation? Because well, I think from a prosecutor, I think from a prosecution's perspective, obviously from a, the backlog in the, in the lab, the director's doing a great job. It's taking the resources, taking time. COVID hasn't helped that. Uh, but what we think we can do again is help take pressure off. We can help prosecute it. And, and the group that we would get literally is lawyers and paralegals. So it would help us once the law enforcement officers do their job, then we can come in and prosecute. And if you had a gang that's operating in three, four or five different counties or jurisdictions, it makes sense. We can be that one center focal point Mm -hmm. from an efficiency standpoint to go in there and prosecute those cases. I want to get to this uh, attorney general Carr, before we, we wrap up because it's been something that your office has been doing a lot of and that's to combat the opioid epidemic. Give our listeners an update. Every, a lot of States are, are grappling with this. How is Georgia doing? They are. And and you've been on this Rose, and I appreciate your interest in it. So there's been a nationwide settlement that was proposed. Georgia had not joined until recently because, and we can't get into all the weeds, but the bottom line is we're eligible to get $636 million over basically 10 or 18 years. Johnson and Johnson would be one. And then the three distributors, I said, we are not signing on to this agreement unless Georgia's in the best position to get 100% of the resources. We needed to come up with a fair, uh, division of money that would come in those mm-hmm. cities and counties that have filed suit versus the state. We've done that. We needed to get the cities and the counties that filed suit to agree to dismiss the case. And we now have to get a, what's called a litigation bar passed through the legislature so that we can't file suit going forward. If we don't do those, we drop down to about 480 million plus the companies could claw back or keep money from us. That said, we've made great progress. We actually have signed on to the agreement. Mm-hmm. And this is going to help particularly rural and exurban counties that don't have treatment options. And that we think that's a critically important. Piece. A big part of that money then would go to funding those centers in those areas. And, and you and I both know the plight of rural populations when it comes to anything related to health and wellness, which also includes mental and also includes substance, substance use disorder. So you you, you see right. this is going to go. Look, somebody's populations they can't wait three and four years down the line they need these centers to come online now that's right and and rose so we've got the bill in the legislature one of the best things your listeners can do this is bipartisan we introduced a bipartisan bill in the house today or we're going to i appreciate the response but this is how georgia gets 636 million you talk about a nonpartisan or bipartisan issue this is it this is about hope this is about helping a population that truly needs it and I think this is a good opportunity for us to, to get the resources to do it. Now, next time you on this show, I want you to wear a bipartisan hat. And that goes for everybody <laughs> on both sides of the aisle. I, I, you know what? I'm going to get those closer look bipartisan hats and send everybody in a general assembly. You think that'll... I'll wear the Braves hat next time. How about that? Really? I need you to get Atlanta Dream hat, too. Come on. They, there you go. There's, and there are a lot of great teams that we've got out there, too. <laughs> and a Morehouse Tigers. All right. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr talking about his top priorities and outlook for 2022. Appreciate the conversation. As always, thank you. Always good to be with you, Rose. Have me back on. All right, now. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. 
And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. Bad to the bone, I'm Rose Scott. One of Georgia's top lawmakers says he's not on board with Buckhead. Legislators are currently weighing whether to allow residents to break away from Atlanta to create a new city. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan told reporters this week there are just too many unanswered questions. If we have not answered the questions of where those kids are going to go to school and what happens to those properties, what happens to those shared bond packages, what happens to the actual law enforcement strategy to make it a safer place to call home, uh, then we failed the folks in those affected areas. And I certainly have not seen anybody come in my office and give me those, those answers. That's just one bit of news to come out of the state capitol this week. Joining me now to discuss all the other groovy information our wabe politics reporters raul bally and sam greenglass the dynamic duel thank you both for taking the time i appreciate it hi rose hey hello rose how about that conversation with attorney general chris carl it was on fire wasn't it well we we just had a little more fire just now down here at the state capitol um from everything we can tell buckhead city is dead um just a few minutes ago so uh, the state budget for 2022 was being voted on. And generally the speaker comes, talks to us after the budget uh, is voted on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was about 30 minutes ago. He came and we asked him about Buckhead. We asked, uh, you know, hey, we, you heard, it was actually our interview with, with uh, Jeff Duncan yesterday that aired. Hey, you heard what, what he had to say. And then this was the response that we got from the speaker. Well, you know, it takes uh, in a bicameral legislature, it takes two chambers to pass a bill. The Senate was very clear, um, and um, I respect their decision. The problem of how we got here is not solved, um, and uh, uh, that being the crime problem. uh, And uh, I'm going to be watching to see uh, what uh, action is taken by uh, leadership here in the city of Atlanta. I'm hopeful that Mayor Dickens recognizes the importance of the problem, and I'm, I'm uh, inclined to believe that he does. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll be back next year if uh, uh, if things haven't changed, changed a lot. So I'm looking for some forceful, vigorous action on the part of the city to tackle that problem. And that was the key. When mm-hmm. we, we'll be back next year. So from everything I can tell at this point, Buckhead City Hood for this legislative session is done. Interesting, because earlier in the week when I spoke with Speaker Rawson, he said it was the issue was so complex. And he did go down the road of that he, through their lens that it was the city of Atlanta leadership under then Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. That was the pro, was the issue with Buckhead wanting to be its own city. I pushed back on that because I didn't think that was fair. But now we hear the speaker saying there's just. There's so much that's not happening. We don't understand this. And let's see what now the city of Atlanta under new leadership will do. And we'll come back in a year. Those are the two vibes. Number one, give the new mayor time. The mayor has been down here over and over talking to lawmakers. And so I think I think what lawmakers are like, this this mayor is taking this seriously. He's talking to us. And therefore, let's give him time. What you heard from Jeff Duncan you know, what you in that clip was, hey, you still need to answer all these questions mm-hmm. that come with Bookhead Cityhood. Well, let's all stay tuned for the next tweet or Instagram post from the leader of Buckhead City. And that should be interesting. Let's move on to something else. Uh, Sam, a lot of action this week about education. You were at a hearing on a bill that would change how schools tackle race in the classroom. Tell our listeners about it. So, Rose, you and I have spent a lot of time on this show already talking about this bucket of bills that tackle what the sponsors call divisive concepts. These are your critical race theory type bills that we've been talking about all session. Uh, This week was the first time one of those bills, SB 377, actually got a hearing. And I was in the room and this Senate committee room was just absolutely packed. A lot of people have very strong feelings about this package of bills. Uh, And we also got to hear for the first time how Democrats are kind of trying to poke holes in this legislation. And one thing that they really zeroed in on is whether there is anything in this bill that this bill is trying to prohibit that is actually being taught in classrooms. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, saying one race of people is inherently inclined to oppress another. The bill sponsor, Republican Senator Bo Hatchett, basically said, no, uh, this bill is proactive rather than reactive, Um, but it's no way intended to prevent teaching the worst parts of American history. 
Democrats were saying that might be the case, uh, but this bill could still have a chilling effect that teachers uh, may end up being scared to address those issues because of the chance that a parent might say, hey, that lesson contained a divisive concept. Mm. Sam, another issue as it relates to education, we saw movement this week on legislation that will impact transgender students who participate in school sports. It will prevent them from joining teams that match their gender identity. How, what's the track with this measure right here? What are we looking at? So what this particular bill would do is it would define gender solely by the sex on a kid's birth certificate. And that would be the sole factor determining which which team a kid can play on at school. Um, The bill sponsors, they're all Republicans. They say this is a question of fairness, uh, that transgender kids have an unfair advantage when they play alongside cisgender girls uh, and are competing for scholarships or spots on a competitive team. Uh, But this week in hearings, we heard from parents of transgender kids who really pushed back forcefully on that idea. Uh, This one mom who testified, Jen Slipikoff, uh, her daughter plays middle school girls lacrosse. And she said her daughter's best friends are on this team. Uh, The parents and the coach are supportive of each other and make her feel like she belongs. And these issues that the bill sponsors raise have actually never come up on this team. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the end, though, the bill passed out of committee. Governor Seth Kump has said he wants to sign such a bill, so it could very well become law. Hmm. Raul, looking to higher education this week, Georgia Georgia lawmaker with substantial influence over funding for the state's colleges and universities, um, came out about his letter that he sent to the regents asking for a lot of information. You got your hands on that letter. Take our listeners through it. So it, it, it's basically asking, the, the, so let's take a step back. The, the, the reason this person is powerful, it's State Representative David Knight. Mm-hmm. And the re- out of Griffith, right? Griffith, Georgia? Yes. yes. And, and the reason he's an important person is he is the chairman of, of the budget subcommittee that oversees the university system of mm-hmm. Georgia. So that's why this is an important player in all this. And he, he sent an 11 page letter basically asking about any person or staffer or professor or anybody who's kind of involved um, with the university system of Georgia, who may be working on diversity or inclusion um, or, 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 or what they're teaching. Mm-hmm. It's a really wide ranging letter and, and what it covers it's a very technical letter, but very wide ranging. Um, and I actually talked to him just a few minutes ago. I wanted to do an interview and he basically told me my letter speaks for itself. I'm, I'm really not going to talk beyond that. So that was his, his comment to me. And but, but, but maybe this is it's an interesting role because let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's dissect this a little bit because he mentioned, Dr. Carol Anderson from Emory. Um, Emory University is not part of the regent system, right? Correct. They're, they're private. Uh, but the, the, I, I get is, it. I get it. But, but there is some state funding that goes uh, to private to to private colleges, and and I, I think I did not ask him again. He didn't do an interview on that, so I, it was definitely going to be something I was going to ask him. But that's my only theory I could give you on that. Well, he also mentioned Dr. Beverly D'Angelo, who doesn't exist. Who is the mom in National Lampoons, I'm pretty sure. Yes, and played Patsy Cline in Coal Miner's Daughter. I'm just, I guess listener would say, look, if you're going to call somebody out in a letter, maybe you should get the name right. Would you ask him that? If you want me to, I can. Well, um, but I mean, look, Raul, come on. Look. Again, I asked him, he said the letter speaks for itself. Um, and so so I didn't have a chance. I think what I'm looking for is to see actually what comes back. I, I definitely want to see what material comes back if, if, we, if we can access it or we're allowed to access it. Um, I don't know the rules on that. As much as I'm looking at the letter, I'm also going to look at what comes back. Sure. And then what do lawmakers do with that information? That's the next step. Yeah, I mean, are you going to ban folks from... Uh, I mean, having I've covered higher ed at my college uh, for a long time, and I can just only imagine that teachers, professors are going to be up in arms over this. I mean, academic freedom and the ability to teach what you want in your classroom is such an important topic for professors and especially those with tenure. I imagine they're going to be speaking out about this. Are you all hearing from other 
lawmakers who are in support of this? Because you're going after academics in your own state system. The couple of lawmakers that I've talked to on the Republican side are like, let's see what comes back. Okay. That, that's basically been the response is I, I'd like to see what what comes back from from this from what he goes looking for. All right. Let's uh, before we get you guys out of here, I want to also just give our listeners an update. Sam, I understand there was some movement this week on a bill that would expand access to guns in the state. What are we looking at? Yeah, so we've been following permitless carry legislation for the last couple of weeks. Uh, The first hearing on that was last week, I think. And just a reminder of what this would do, it would make permits optional to carry a handgun in Georgia. Uh, Now, you'd still have to go through a background check if you buy a gun at a store, Uh, but right now you don't have to do a background check if you get a gun through a private sale or as a gift. Um, Governor Kemp has made permitless carry a top priority. He's heading into a competitive primary. And uh, just to give you a sense of the landscape of gun laws in this country, about 20 other states already have laws like this on the books. So Georgia would not be the first. So let me ask you this, because has there been any conversation about, listen, you also have to keep in mind what this might do to the revenue for some counties, because if you do away, because I believe with some background checks and and other provisions, there's a fee that's involved. Right. And so yep, there's a fee. I think it's up to seventy five dollars is the max. Something right. like that. So let's just I'm throwing this out there. Let's say X county usually has about 10,000 of these background checks at in you know, for seventy five thousand. you know, per background check or whatever. That's a lot of money for X county. And if you do away with that, are lawmakers talking about how this would impact some counties in terms of revenue? Because that could be a big, big injection for them that they're going to lose. It's a good question. It is one that has not come up in public comment that I've heard uh, from counties. I know the bill's sponsors have said that they've been very tuned in talking to sheriffs and law enforcement uh, who say they support this bill. But I will say that is not uniform. Uh, The Democratic legislators on these committees have pushed back saying they've heard the very opposite. Uh, So uh, we will see. Raul, uh, I'm supposed to ask you about raw milk. Now, I remember... (laughs) long time ago, back in my days when I was in the baby newsroom, I covered some legislation about raw milk because I believe here in Georgia, you cannot buy raw milk for human consumption, only just for correct. like cattle or livestock or whatever animals, correct? Correct. Right now, that is the law. Uh, you can also buy it like in pet stores for, for pet consumption. Mm-hmm. So what's going on with it? So there is a bill, uh, House Bill 1175. Um filed by one of the, the one of the most respected you know re- lawmakers among the agriculture corps and he's talking about um, you know standards how to process it how to sell it labeling for raw milk here in the state of Georgia and when I asked him about it he goes you know he sees that people a he sees people are selling this mm-hmm. uh, under the table maybe it you know there it should be regulated um, and he's not a big regulation lawmaker. Uh, there was a hearing yesterday, and, and the number of people who messaged me about that hearing, it was it was a hearing you heard from uh, public health people, you heard from dairy people, you heard, um, you know, from the medical community. And just walking around this building, everybody has an opinion on whether raw milk should be sold or not. How should it be sold? Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, about an hour ago, about two hours ago. I had a staffer who I heard, hey, so-and-so staffer drinks, it brings raw milk and drinks it here. Hmm. So I'm going to go talk to that person. I haven't even had a chance to talk to that person. Everybody seems to have an opinion about it. And it's it's legislation I have to follow. And, and let me tell you a really short, short, short story. Mm-hmm. When my child was born in Augusta, Georgia, uh, back in 2011, I was in a grocery store. My son was in, in the car seat and I'm pushing the cart around. And a lady walks up to me and whispers, do you want raw milk for your child? Okay. And I'm like, what? Well, we're it, bringing, they're bringing in raw milk from South Carolina where yeah. it's legal into a. And, and of course, the challenge with that is that it's unpasteurized. It can it can carry lots of bacteria and cause other types of issues. So I'm sure that will be debated. Interesting. We shall see where this goes. Raul Bally, Sam Greenglass. <laughs> they cover politics for WABE. I am not endorsing folks to drink raw milk. Nor is anyone else in this program. I'm just saying, be careful. Whew, it's Friday. Thanks, fellas. I appreciate it as always. 
Happy Friday, Rose. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. got me fired up. If you don't know any of these folks, mm, the closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. In case you don't know, there's a game this weekend and it's called the Super Bowl. Who you got? The Bengals? Rams? Returning to closer look to talk about a whole lot of issues, sports marketing and business analysts. Also founder of Atlanta-based sports marketing firm, Branding House, Marcel English. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How are you? I have missed you. You've missed us. Wow. You, good I have thing missed you, you guys. You at the end on a Friday because, woo. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, because you usually go to the, the Super Bowl, and I know with COVID, right. COVID the last few years, when you look at the, pro, the protocols that were in place this past season and last season, uh, how would you rate the NFL and how they've been able to handle this? You know, the NFL um, started off great. Um, they had a policy in place. They, they continue with this policy um, going into this 2021-2022 season. Um, and then uh, towards the end, you had the, the, the Aaron Rodgers, whatever you want to call that, fiasco. <laughs> um, and, and, and then it just kind of became a little lax. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then... But then you start to see a number of other players that are becoming positive, a number of coaches, um, you know, other staff members. So it makes you question, like, what was really happening behind the scenes? Is the testing really happening the way that you're saying that it's happening? Um, Or is it just, you know, one of the boxes that you're checking? Well, because, for example, we were told Antonio Brown, well, when he was in the league, uh, was vaccinated and it came out that he was not. He had presented some type of false documentation. Uh, we're all having to deal with COVID-19 and have to adjust the leagues in general, NBA, NFL, the WNBA seemed to have it down pat. They only had, I believe one case. I don't know why the other league can't get it together, but, um, is this where we're just going to be right now? We just rely on what the, the teams say and the league say, and then just go with that. You know, unfortunately that is, you know, the league is letting, um, the individual teams, you know, have a lot of say so of what happens and how those tests are done. The league puts out their own policy. Um, then it's up to the team to follow that policy. Uh, but I would have liked to see a little bit more um, conversation around, you know, in a corporate environment, if uh, Antonio Brown had presented false documentation, um, that is something that you could be fired for, mm-hmm. um, you know, terminated off the bat. Um, but, you know, it was, uh, imposed with suspensions and then a fine. And then you had the Aaron Rodgers situation who says he's vaccinated, but then it's not really vaccinated. It's more of a play on words of he got vaccinated, how he felt as though he should be vaccinated, not how the league specified that vaccination should happen. So, you know, you, you just have to uh, bring everybody to the table, have one concrete procedure and let's move forward with that. Yeah, because all we know Aaron Rodgers could have got a shingles shot. We don't know what that means. Uh, exactly. Speaking with the league, <laughs> they're yeah. NFL still dealing with some racial equity issues. A lot of folks are pointing to Roger Goodell. But let's yes. be really clear. We know Roger Goodell is there on behalf of the owners. Let's be clear. The exactly. league is on behalf of the owners. At this point, through your lens, should there be some type of change? Should the players, the Players Association, should they demand some leadership changes within this league? You know, I think so. Um, You have Roger Goodell, who is um, sending down uh, processes and procedures, not only for the owners, but for the teams um, and the players as well. So there should be some type of route as well as the Players Association. So there should be some type of person that is a a representative of all of these three groups um, of the of the owners of the P.A., 
of the um, the players themselves. Roger Goodell has been in office since 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, honestly, from the perspective of dealing with um, diversity and racial issues, he has taken a brunt of that. Um, he talks a good game. He, you know, in his annual uh, press conference that happens every Super Bowl where he sits down and and it's just him answering questions with the media. Um, you know, he says he bears the responsibility as well do our clubs uh, for a number of things that happen. But at the same time, we've been through this before. I've mm-hmm. heard this same scenario from Roger Goodell when we were dealing with um, Kaepernick, when we've had other issues of racial inequity um, across the league, but then nothing changes uh, when we... I'm, I'm sorry. So, but, you know, and then when we are, you know, NFL is still dealing with that. You know, we had Brian Flores uh, is now suing the NFL and a number of teams because of what is happening. Uh, the NFL just is, it, it, here's the opportunity for them to really take a step back, bring some people to the table and have a deep conversation and put some things into place. Well, and as a friend of mine, we were having this conversation last night and he said to me, he said, look, Rose, the issue is that, when we start seeing the hiring of people of color as, as head coaches' jobs, particularly with black men, that it's because the league has been forced into it. And he said, we need to get to a point where we're not forcing the league to have these, as he, as they put it, minority hires. we got to get to a point where we know the process is fair and, and equal. And I think that's what a lot of people are, are looking for. Um, do, you think, do you think there will be some policy changes? Look, the late Johnny Cochran with the Rooney with the Rooney rule, someone would argue it's been good, it's been bad. But moving forward here, the league has got to do something because, or every uh, it, it look every Super Bowl we keep asking the same question: Hey, what about your DEI initiatives? Right, right. And you know, it's funny because the Rooney rule uh, was adopted in in 2003. Here we are in 2022. We're still having the same uh, conversation. Um, Dan Rooney, who is the late owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, who was the chair of the diversity committee at the time, uh, was really speaking up to the workplace diversity and bringing the Rooney rule into the NFL. Because at that time, um, there was black play, uh, black coaches were not getting the interviews. Um, But I cannot, and and here we are today, again, 2022, where one of the only black longest tenured coaches uh, is uh, is the coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then I don't think that in 2003, Dan Rooney's thought process was in, um, you know, almost 20 years later, we're still having the same conversation. Right. Um, the conversation also needs to be had with the owners. You know, the owners need to understand and buy in um, to having black coaches. You have no problems with having black players. You have no problems with having black offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators, uh, special teams. You have no problems with having African-American ball boys. You have no problems with having African-American support staff, but what you have a problem with, and I say you have a problem with it because you have not done anything about it, um, you have a problem with having an African-American coach. The same can honestly be said, uh, which can go into a whole nother conversation, is why we don't see a lot of African-American quarterbacks. Well, yeah, that's a whole, we've come a long way, and I remember remember in my sports talk days, and you know, because you and I had you on the show, and and I had a local radio analyst tell me, Blacks playing quarterback, that was never an issue, Rose. And I'm like, really, dude? Okay, uh, let's move on. From a marketing standpoint, Cincinnati, not a major market, but they're a market playing the Rams. Right. Is this a boom for the league in terms of, you know, national spotlight? I think it's more because the Bengals are an underdog than opposed to the that market. You know, there's so many different ways to look at this. I think um, football fans are excited to possibly see um, some different players actually in the Super Bowl. We've seen um, the Brady for years. We've seen the Patriots, um, you know, so here are two teams that, you know, we really don't get to see that often. Um, and, and and making it to the Super Bowl was not something that um, we kind of said, you know, we're going, oh, you know, at the beginning of the season, it's going to be the Rams and um, the Cincinnati. Bengals, yeah. I don't, I don't think that that was the prediction or everybody was talking about it. I would not be surprised if, you know, if this is a low rated Super Bowl. Um, I, Even know, with the I'm, halftime show? 
I, no, wait a minute. I think people are going to tune in for the halftime show. Um, I think people are going to tune in for the halftime show and, of course, the commercial. So, uh, but I would not be surprised. But I hope it's a good game because I do like Joe Burrow. Mm-hmm. The, 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 Quarterback the for Cincinnati, yeah. Yes, I, I do like Joe Burrow. Um, but I you got his cigar game. But, but here's um, a, okay, his cigar game. Okay, but look, let's be fair, too. For all the years that the Rams quarterback, Matthew Stafford, toiled in Detroit, and much love to my Detroit folks, my goodness, he's now, and he's a Georgia, you know, he's a Georgia kid. Right. He's now, you, you got you, you to gotta feel for him, too, and, and that's that's pretty good, you know, because playing in Detroit for as long as he did, goodness. <laughs> you know what? I am so excited for Matthew Stafford. Um, and as you said, played a number of years um, in Detroit. And honestly, I thought he was going to retire or leave the game after Calvin Johnson left mm-hmm. um, because that duo was amazing in Detroit. Um, and then after that, it was just uh, a bust season after season. Um, and then he comes to and now he's with the Rams. And, you know, here we are. Yeah. So who wins? Give me your prediction. Who you got? I, I'm, I'm going Rams. I'm going Rams. Oh. I, I want to see Matthew Stafford get this. <laughs> and I want to see it. All right. Halftime show. Who are you looking forward to oh, seeing? I mean, up I'm there? over. I am so excited. I am so, <laughs> so excited. Uh, Mary J. Blige is going to kill it. I oh, don't yeah. care what anybody yeah. says. Um, Mary J. Blige is. And, and listening to the press conference and even Snoop. Snoop is so excited. You would not think, you know, he's always calm, cool, collected, um, calm demeanor sitting in the back and it's just like but he is he's 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 I'm, you know I'm sure I'm sure Snoop will will make his way <laughs> on stage by the way you know I'm so proud that they got young blood young cat up in there so to speak and Kendrick Lamar really is yes. I agree with Eminem one of the top tier lyricists let's be really yeah. clear about that you know if you don't listen to any hip hop rap beyond Kendrick Lamar that's fine you can stop there I'm just saying but right. he's one he, of the top he does it yeah. yes up, he's up there. Up there with, with, with my girl, MC Light. Top lyricist. Appreciate it. Marcel, thank you so much for taking the time. Always. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producers, Sam Whitehead, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rosawabe.org. By the way, have you checked out our new website? Please do so, wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.